Welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal preacher. After studying the Bible and church history afresh, I converted to Catholicism in December 2017. I'm talking today about the rather remarkable story of an anti-Catholic who repented. His name is Ralph Woodrow. In the 1960s, in 1966, he self-published a book called Babylon Mystery Religion. It was translated into multiple languages and it was very well read around the world. It was probably one of the most popular or famous anti-Catholic books ever written. And in 1997, I bought a copy of that book and read it, and it made me very anti-Catholic. I utterly despised the popes and the Catholic Church in general, and after reading that book, I was convinced that I would never, ever become a Catholic. I had a Catholic friend of mine in school, and I showed the book to him. He was rather shocked, his eyes went wide, and he didn't say much. And then he went away and talked to his priest. And when he saw me the next time, he was loaded with ammunition to defend the Catholic Church. He pointed out that the hat that bishops wear that resemble a fish comes from where Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. And he said that we don't worship the Pope. He's not some godlike, infallible man. He's just a shepherd, a pastor of the flock. <clears throat> and he also challenged us and said, why do you Protestants have 66 books instead of 73? And I said, oh, those books are called the Apocrypha and they were never considered scripture. And he said, but they were. And I said, no, they weren't. And we went back and forth, and because this was in the days before the internet and libraries were few and far between, neither of us was, to, was able to prove the other one wrong. What I didn't realise in 1997 is that the author himself, Ralph Woodrow, withdrew his own book from publication, and he denounced it as false, and erroneous, and he wrote a book refuting his previous book. And the book he wrote, which I've got with me, is called The Babylon Connection, with a question mark on the end. The Babylon Connection. And he wrote it in 1997, self-published again. His first book, Babylon mystery religion was very heavily borrowed from a, another disreputable book called The Two Babylons by Reverend Alexander Hislop. Reverend Alexander Hislop was a 19th century crank who tried to argue with the most laughable pseudo-historical methods that Nimrod 
was married to a goddess called Semiramis, even though they lived in different centuries, and he tried to argue that all the major gods or goddesses were either Nimrod or Semiramis. And his book is full of errors on virtually every single page, for example. And I did a video and a podcast on Alexander Hislop, which you can listen to. And he claimed that Buddhists worship Buddha, which is not true. He claims that Zoroastrians worship fire, which is not true. And he uses phrases like, everyone knows, or it is well known, and doesn't prove any of his sources. And many of the sources that he cites don't say what he claims they say. But The Two Babylons is published by Chick Publications, and they still promote garbage like that. And Ralph Woodrow read The Two Babylons and he basically adapted it and did a much simpler book of his own that was more readable and added in a few things. But he relied heavily on The Two Babylons. And his book was self-published, which is interesting because if it had had to be published by another company they would have probably gone over it with, with a fine tooth comb and said okay can you give evidence for this and that and he may not have been able to do that I'll read what Ralph Woodrow himself says in his introduction to the Babylon Connection as a young evangelist, I began to share a sermon on the mixture of paganism into Christianity and eventually wrote a book based on Hislop, Babylon Mystery Religion. In time, my book became quite popular, went through many printings and was translated into Korean, German, Spanish, Portuguese and several other languages. I came to be regarded by some as an authority on the subject of pagan mixture. Even a noted Roman Catholic writer, Carl Keating, said its best known proponent is Ralph Woodrow, author of Babylon Mystery Religion. Many preferred my book over the two Babylons because it was easier to read and follow. Sometimes the two books were confused with each other and I even had the experience on one occasion of being greeted as Reverend Hislop. Letters in a steady flow were received praising my book. Only occasionally would there be a dissenting voice. One who disagreed was Scott Clem, a high school history teacher in Southern California. Being a Christian and appreciating other things I had written, he began to show me evidence that Hislop was not a reliable historian. As a result, I realised that I needed to go back through Hislop's work, my basic source, and prayerfully check it out. As I did this, it became clear Hislop's history was often only mythology. Even though myths may sometimes reflect events that actually happened, an arbitrary piecing together of ancient myths cannot provide a sound basis for history. Take enough tribes, enough tales, enough time, jump from one time to another, from one country to another, pick and choose similarities. Why, anything could be proved. 
And then he says, in the following pages, though, we will challenge some of Hislop's claim. This is not intended as an attack against him personally. In addition to being a writer, he served as the pastor of the East Free Church Arboroth, Scotland. As far as we know, he was a dedicated Christian, a brother in Christ. When we will repeatedly refer to him as Hislop rather than Reverend Hislop or Mr Hislop, no lack of respect is intended. Nor is it our goal in writing this book to merely discredit another book. Instead, it is our desire that this effort will help us to understand the way of God more perfectly and find a biblical balance. Well, I don't think it was necessary for him to put a disclaimer in. I think Alexander Hislop, if he was a pastor, we can see by his conduct in that uh, drivel he wrote, The Two Babylons, that he was a professional liar. Now, I want to say first and foremost, I really appreciate the integrity of Ralph Woodrow in withdrawing his book, Babylon Mystery Religion, from publication. And I have no doubt he probably lost a lot of money by doing that. God bless him for doing that, and I pray that God will be merciful to this man. But, you know, his book was not very well researched when he did it. And I'm a bit disappointed that it would take him 31 years to realise that he probably shouldn't have ever printed that book. And he should have probably done a bit of research before uh, diving in and reading it. <clears throat> And this is how he says he came to realise it was wrong, uh, Hislop. He says, Bearing in mind that Hislop's subtitle is The Papal Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife, I've carefully checked the articles on Nimrod and Semiramis in many recognised reference works, including the following. The Encyclopaedia Americana, the Encyclopaedia Britannica, the Encyclopaedia Judaica, the Encyclopaedia of Religion, the New Catholic Encyclopaedia and the World Book Encyclopaedia. That is pretty pedestrian. That's pretty basic. Yes, encyclopedias are mostly reliable. They're not always reliable on every single thing. They're also secondary sources. And one gets the impression he didn't even bother checking these sources when he did Babylon Mystery Religion. And then he finally used them to do a rewrite. I'm sorry, but that is not very good research at all. That, that is shocking. And in his bibliography... Even of his rewrite of the book, he doesn't really use many primary sources. They're almost entirely general encyclopedias. He has Tacitus, Cornelius, but he doesn't have much more in that way.
Nevertheless, I am very grateful to Ralph Woodrow because when I read his book, The Babylon Connection, a lot of the anti-Catholic feelings that I had were destroyed. They were blown right out of the water. I always struggled with the feeling, but isn't the Vatican City the city on seven hills? And Ralph Woodrow points out on pages 50 and 51 that the Vatican is nowhere near the seven hills of Rome. In fact, where the Vatican City is today, it was never in old Rome. It wasn't part of Rome in Jesus' time, and it's not part of Rome now. And he also points out the urban legend, Vicarious Philae Day, which the Roman numerals add up to 666. It means Vicar of the Son of God. The problem is, though, no Pope ever had that on his throne or on his hat or on his mitre, as anti-Catholic conspiracy theorists claim. Instead, it's an urban legend. He points out there was an Andreas Helwig, 1572-1643, claimed that that added up to 666. And then in the, in the 1800s, a 7th-day Adventist called Uriah Smith spread the rumour that it was on the Pope's crown. But it's an urban legend. It's garbage. And... As Woodrow points out, Nero Caesar adds up to 666. Nero Caesar in Hebrew. And he says, if you get Ellen Gould White, she was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and she was viciously anti-Catholic. He said, if you get the Roman numerals from her name, the U gets changed to a V because that's what it is in Roman, and the W for white is two Vs together, it adds up to 666. And she was a very evil woman who made a lot of false prophecies, and most of her so-called prophetic works are actually plagiarised from elsewhere. He also destroys the notion that the cross is a pagan symbol and that Christmas is a pagan festival and Easter as well. But I finally want to deal with his last chapter. And it's called Excess Baggage and that's where he does a critique of the Catholic Church. And there he claims that the Catholic Church has a lot of doctrinal problems that he disagrees with. So first and foremost, I want to applaud this man for having renounced his own original book and shown that integrity. But he is still against Catholicism and he thinks we've got it wrong. So I want to answer his objections that he has. So here goes. He points out that Catholics, on page 112, Catholics and Evangelicals 
uh, hold our major beliefs in common. And he cites the Apostles' Creed, which, by the way, too, it was the Catholic Church that authorised that. He then, in, he then points out the differences. He says, there are also distinct differences between Roman Catholics and Evangelical Christians in doctrine, interpretation and emphasis. Things like transubstantiation, the use of statues, bowing before a communion wafer, repetitious prayers, confession to a priest, indulgences, purgatory, the perpetual virginity of Mary, forbidding priests to marry, the papacy, papal infallibility, etc. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to look at these points he makes. He says that a celibate priesthood is wrong and it's forbidding to marry, which is a doctrine of devils. Now, every Catholic would agree that forbidding marriage is a doctrine of devils. It says so in Scripture. Here's the thing. We Catholics do not forbid marriage. Anyone who wants to get married can get married. However, in life, some people are called to marriage. Other people are called to singleness. Some people have the gift of marriage, others have the gift of singleness. It's called your vocation. And if a Catholic is not called to marriage, they are encouraged to consider, if they're a woman, becoming a nun and serving the Lord wholeheartedly. And if they're a man, becoming a priest or a monk, although monks are officially classified as priests. But due to a shortage of priests, most of them are encouraged to become, most of the monks, that is, are encouraged to just fill in for the priesthood. And Paul the Apostle, in 1 Corinthians 7, says that, the man who marries does well, but the man who does not marry does even better, and that you can serve the Lord more wholeheartedly. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, talks about those who have renounced marriage for the kingdom of heaven. He says there were eunuchs, but there were those who have renounced marriage for the kingdom of heaven. And in Luke chapter 18, verses 29 and 30, he also talks about those who have abandoned having a family for the kingdom of heaven. Luke chapter 18, verse 29, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, whoever has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of heaven will receive much more in the present time and the world to come. He will have eternal life. So we Catholics recognise that marriage is just for this life. We won't be married in heaven. And so being celibate is actually preparation for heaven.
And so the priesthood is reserved for people that have the vocation not to get married. People that are gifted that way, like Paul the Apostle and Jesus. And if they want to get married and they're a priest, they can. We don't forbid them, but they step down from the ministry. Now, the priesthood being celibate, by the way, is not a doctrine. It's a discipline. It's a practice. It can be revoked at any time. His other objection that Woodrow makes is transubstantiation. And if you read John chapter 6 in depth, Jesus repeatedly talks about, and he says, my flesh is real food. Verse 55, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. John chapter 6, verses 55 and 56. And the Greek word is used to chew or gnaw on food. And I've done a podcast dealing with this. It's what the early church believed. Everyone in Christianity believed this doctrine until Holrick Swingley. The other... Uh, issue he makes is the use of statues well in the bible there were statues numbers chapter 21 verses 8 and 9 moses god commanded moses to build a bronze serpent now when it was worshipped much later on it was destroyed but see catholics don't worship these statues there are also cherubim statues in the temple, 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 23 to 32. And God was pleased with them, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. And then we read in Ezekiel chapter 41, 17 to 20, Ezekiel's prophetic temple was to have carvings of palm trees, lions and cherubim, graven images. And they weren't committing idolatry or sin by having that. And then he says repetitious prayers. Well, in Revelation, it talks about how the four living creatures were praying constantly day and night. It says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings, Day and night they sang without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. So saying that the rosary is repetitious prayer doesn't work. That's not so. And then he says the perpetual virginity. He also points out, I'll just first look at popes. And he points out popes who committed sins or who were evil. He's quite correct in saying that there have been evil popes because we Catholics know that. We don't believe our popes are infallible men. We believe they're sinners like us. However, we believe they are capable of making infallible statements if they sit in Peter's seat and make pronouncements on church 
doctrines which are ex cathedra. Our position on the popes is the same as our position on St. Peter. St. Peter was a very flawed individual. He cut a man's ear off. He denied Christ three times. He was a very bad individual. He also repented. And yet he was able to write infallible scripture. He wrote 1 and 2 Peter. And he also dictated the Gospel of Mark, which Mark wrote, but Peter was the one who gave the most input into it. And that's how we see our popes. They're flawed men, just like Peter. Some of them have been utterly evil, and they'll be in hell. But not all of them are like that. The vast majority of popes have been Godly, humble men. Then on page 115, he says, Certainly Mary was a godly woman, chosen by God in a unique way to be the mother of Jesus and blessed among women. Yet, as the Encyclopedia Britannica states, during the first centuries of the church, no emphasis was placed upon Mary whatsoever. And he cites volume 14, page 309. If indeed she was to become the Queen of Heaven and all that this implies, we would question why there is no hint of this superiority in Scripture. Well, there is a hint of this superiority in Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 6 runs parallel with Luke chapter 1. And that led to the interpretation we Catholics have that Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred place where God dwelt. And Jesus, who was God, dwelt in Mary's womb for nine months. If indeed she was to become the Queen of Heaven and all that that implies, well, the Queen Mother in ancient Israel was the King's Mother. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Mary is his mother, which makes her the Queen Mother. And Queen of Heaven, by the way, too, does not mean she's Queen over God and everything in Heaven. It means she's the Queen Mother with her Son, who is the King. And also Revelation Chapter 12 is about Mary. She's crowned with, with glory. She's robed with the stars, clothed with the sun, and she's standing on the moon. That is the language from Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph had his dream of the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him. Now, this was not a prophecy of making him a god. No, it means he was going to get a high position of authority under the king of Egypt. And so in Revelation chapter 12, Mary, she wasn't made into a goddess. We don't worship her. Rather, she was exalted to a position of great authority under the king of heaven, Jesus. Just as Joseph in Genesis, was exalted to a high position of authority under the supreme pharaoh or king of Egypt. 
and we call her Mother of God. We don't say she was the Mother of the Trinity or anything idiotic like that. We say she was Mother of God because Jesus is God, God in the flesh. Isaiah 9, 6, John 1, 1. And the term Mother of God is to emphasise the humanity of Christ, not any alleged divinity of Mary. But once again, he relies on a secondary source, the encyclopaedia, to tell us that Mary had nothing special for the first few centuries of Christianity. And what he's trying to imply is that Catholicism is an invention, a fabrication, centuries after the time of Christ. Well, let's have a look. In, from this time, from primary sources, In 150 to 170 AD, we have the Proto-Evangelion of James. This book is not scripture. It's a Christian tradition. But nevertheless, it reflects what the early church, two generations after the death of the last apostle, believed. And the Proto-Evangelion of James says that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She'd made a vow of virginity and she entered into a non-sexual, non-consummated marriage with Joseph, who was an old widower who wasn't interested in getting married. But he got a divine revelation. Now, some of you are probably scratching your heads and thinking, well, why on earth would that happen? Why would she get married if she was never going to have sex. Well, it's the first century Judea. What do you think would happen to a young woman who got pregnant out of marriage? They were stoned to death. Think about the mob that wanted to kill that woman. Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. She needed to have a husband. She needed to have a protector and Jesus needed to grow up in a home with a mother and a father, not just a mother. <clears throat> then around the same time, we have Justin Martyr. <coughs> and Justin Martyr tells us that Mary was the second Eve in his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, section 100. And Tertullian, in 210 AD, early 3rd century, says the same thing. In his book, The Flesh of Christ, chapter 17, verse 5. Irenaeus, who lived around 180 AD, said the Virgin Mary, being obedient to his word, received from an angel the glad tidings that she would bear God. And that's from his book Against Heresies, Volume 5, Chapter 19, Verse 1. Hegesippus, in fragments from his five books of commentaries on the Acts of the Church, Book 5, and this was in 170 AD, he refutes the notion of Mary having other children. And then from 180 to 216 AD, we have the epitaph of Bishop Abertius. 
and he talks of the virgin queen of heaven. And in 250 AD, there's a Coptic fragment that contains a prayer to Mary. And then in 347 AD, we have Athanasius. And he refers to Virgin Mary, Mother of God, in his Apology Against the Arians, chapter 3, verse 29. And in his book on virginity, which was written prior to 373 AD, he says that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So that, my friends, debunks that quote from the Encyclopedia Britannica and I used primary sources for that. I want to applaud Ralph Woodrow for refuting and withdrawing his first book from publication but I would encourage him if he hears this to reconsider his views on Catholicism. They're a lot more moderate now but nevertheless, I would uh, recommend rethinking some of your views. Thank you everyone for listening. I'm Paul Martin. God bless.